Hello and welcome to another episode of Material Matters with Grant Gibson. I've been doing this for nearly four years now, would you believe? But for listeners who might be new to the show, the idea is that I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about a material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. Today, I'm delighted to welcome guests Rosalie McMillan and Adam Fairweather. The design duo are co-founders of the recycled plastic manufacturer Smile Plastics and have a factory in South Wales which takes plastics and other materials traditionally classed as waste and transforms them into an extraordinarily eye-catching, large-scale, solid surface panel. Over the years, the company has worked with the likes of Stella McCartney, Christian Dior, Paul Smith, Selfridges and the Wellcome Trust, to name just a handful. Interestingly, this is the second coming of the material, I first came across it in the mid-90s when it was created by the designer and educator Jane Atfield for her renowned RCP2 chair, a piece that's in the permanent collections of the V&A and the Crafts Council and which is currently included in the Yinka Alori show at the London Design Museum. In this episode, we'll discover something of the history and the properties of the product, why these two designers decided to revive the company in 2014 and how they've moved from a small site in the centre of London to a factory in South Wales. Hello, Adam. Hi, Rosalie. How are you both? Excellent. Thank you. Very nice to see you. This is one of those double-headed interviews where we're over the internet and you're both in different rooms in the same flat or, or house. It's kind of complicated. So there's two pairs of headphones, two laptops, two microphones being used. Can we try and locate it for listeners? Where are you both currently? We're sitting in our flat in Swansea. Swansea's on the Gower Peninsula, a really, really beautiful part of South Wales, identified as an area of outstanding natural beauty, one of the first to be identified as such. And it's a really, really remarkable place that we live. We're so happy to be here. Our factory is uh, on Crofty Industrial Estate on the north side of the Gower. And uh, there's a real kind of eclectic mix of tiny businesses up there. We've got a casters, we've got surfboard manufacturer, we've got a cigarette manufacturer, e-cigarette oh, wow. manufacturer, um, and we're just next to the Gower Brewery and opposite a cockle factory as well. So real mix going on there. And we've got a small scale site there manufacturing all of our plastics. We're just about to move. In fact, the uh, <laughs> the lorries arrived today. Oh, really? Oh, wow. To start moving. It's going to take a long time, actually. We're doing it in several phases. But yeah, the first phase has just commenced. We're going to get into that later, I suspect. Yeah. But right now, Adam, you are, well, we started this interview, you're on a sofa, but you're now what, in the kitchen or something, trying to find the most comfortable spot. Yes, I'm sitting downstairs in the kitchen of our little converted garage, studio apartment type place, not studio, but a small apartment in, um, in Swansea. And Rosalie's upstairs looking out over the sea. Yeah, in the spare bedroom by the look of it. Yep. Very nice, very nice. So let's talk about smart plastics. What is it that you make and what are the properties of the material that you make possess? So we make decorative surface materials that are made from 100% recycled materials, predominantly plastics, packaging and things like that, that we sinter into solid panels and designers and architects use that for displacing other materials that they might have used to create sort of uh, furniture and, and interior and sometimes exterior products for the built environment. We sort of classify ourselves as a material design studio, a manufacturing house. So what that also means is that we work with people to create new materials, whether it's patterns or 
technical materials from different mm. types of waste stream for various products. So your waste, what kind of waste are you using? I mean, yogurt pots, plastic bottles, other things? Yeah, a lot of the material that we work with are single life packaging products, which right. were only intended for one sort of application stuff that you see in the fridge when you open the door. More recently, we started looking, and in fact, we've been looking at it for a long time, but we just launched a product actually made out of the interiors of refrigerators. So that's quite an interesting material for us as well. So it's not a single life item, it's refrigerators, which also are sort of consumable. And certainly we have several in our lifetime as, as humans. So they are kind of multiple versions within, our, within one person's lifespan. But it's very interesting to take those materials and manufacture something with, with those as well. So essentially we can take anything. What's very nice about our manufacturing approach and the methodologies that we have and the way we set up the business is that we can pivot quite quickly to look at different types of materials, whether it's polymer-based or material source-based. Right. I'm quite interested in talking to you about process. And it sounds as if the process for the classic smart plastics product that I think people will have seen possibly on the market where you're using yogurt pots and, and you know, single-use plastic, is that very different from a process to what you're doing now with the fridges and disposed white goods? In the last few years, we have totally reinvented pretty much every single aspect of smart plastics from when we started. So yes, an awful lot has changed, uh, whether it's the manufacturing engineering work, which has been totally rethought and revised to be much lower energy and produce higher quality products, or whether it's just the ecosystem that surrounds our business. It's totally reimagined from what it was in 2010 when the business uh, in its first instance closed and we took it on. So um, essentially we can take material. It doesn't matter what it is. We focus on using recycled plastics, but we've also worked with all sorts of unusual materials, converting them into really beautiful, decorative, sort of luxurious feeling materials that people cherish and really sort of get excited about in a way that they don't with conventional sort of off-the-shelf building materials. Mm. And in a way, that's what's been the driving force behind Smile Plastics over its entire existence as an idea, is to kind of embrace the aesthetic of sustainability in a really material-driven way and try and communicate something very powerful. But not much changes in the manufacturing approach, really, that we tweak things and there's techniques, craft techniques, which we have to adapt in order to be able to accomplish a kind of a product. Yeah, that's quite interesting. I'm quite intrigued to know, I don't know how much you're going to reveal to me, but I'm quite intrigued to know how you take this waste plastic and turn it into these solid sheets. Because certainly initially, when you took over the company in 2014, you look at all the clippings, there's a lot of talk about craftsmanship and artisan way of working. I mean, is that still the case? Yes, mostly. The things that we've done in terms of production line have really been to remove some of the more heavy lifting aspects. But in terms of the pattern on the material, that originates because it's laid like that. It's placed like that by hand. So every sheet is handmade, although there's machines involved in it. We've tried to remove a lot of the really heavy stuff out of it for people. And then we try to kind of make the manufacturing process a little bit more efficient. But it's very much a craft business. We work with raw materials like a master baker might. We're looking for the, you know, we someone who makes beautiful bread will say that the best bread you can make is when you mill the flour yourself on the day that you bake it. And in a way, that's our approach to recycling. We get very, very hands-on with the raw material to try and work with it to make the best possible product. And that starts with a kind of a really deep quality process 
in terms of sourcing and selecting and organizing and curating the raw materials in a way that will enable us to make something which is repeatable to some extent, but mostly just very pretty and ornate. And that pattern only can only happen really, and the abstractness of that pattern can only happen if you allow there to be a human craft element in the making process. Right. So that I'm still intrigued. You've got the raw materials, you've curated it, you've sorted it. What do you do to it? It's called centering the manufacturing process, which is using heat and pressure. We've tried to remove as much heat as we can. So it's very low energy. And what happens is the materials are laid up in a particular way based on on what we're trying to produce. And then it's crushed under a lot of pressure. It's a little bit like the way that earth is slowly compacted over millions of years and slowly creates beautiful rock formations that you might want to use as your granite worktop, etc. Or in a similar way to how fossils are created over millions of years, sort of compressed carbon that slowly eventually turns into charcoal, which, you know, is a kind of a solid stone-like material in its own right. Thankfully, we have a lot a more accelerated process. We have a slightly more accelerated process. To wait millions of years. <laughs> yes. We have a commercially viable business. <laughs> yes. I'm glad to hear it. I'm glad to hear it. So it totally answers your question, but like Rosalie says, it, we've accelerated that a little bit. But mm. essentially, that's the idea. You can see when you look at rock formations that it's made by things moving around under heat and pressure over many years and slowly solidifying and then sitting there in that pattern. And that's kind of how the smart plastics materials are produced. Yeah. And then often we'll sell them as full sheets, three meters by 1.2 meters, or we do have a small kind of fabrication uh, team in-house that we do some some cutting and sort of basic build work as well. The properties of this material, these different materials, what can you do with them? You can thermoform, you can cut them. Yeah, um, you can do so much. You sort of you can treat them a little bit like uh, wood, so you can use woodworking equipment. Uh, you can cut them using circular uh, saws. You can drill into them, screw. You can glue. You're not really limited by kind of flat sheet either. You can thermoform them as well into interesting shapes. So the sky's the limit, really, in terms of application, because you know you can can treat it like a building material making mm. sculpture through to very very complicated parts of the built environment they get used for anything from jewelry right the way through to really sizable chunky build projects mm. but presumably like granite or stone that you've talked about no batch is exactly the same no and that's um that's a wonderful thing really about our materials is that even within the sheet there's quite a lot of variation and that's because of the nature of working with different sort of waste uh, materials every single sheet is going to be unique both within and across the sheets um we do try and limit it to a certain extent because you know a lot of our customers will kind of need to know what they're what they're going to going to get and make sure that it's going to suit the other materials um, mm. and the and the design that's the beauty of it. You know, you can identify the yogurt pot lid in the material, the barcode, and it tells its own story. It's got very, very powerful um, kind of narrative uh, to the material that you can see just by looking at the material. Our customers really embrace that. I think it's a, a, a kind of, you know, one of the unique features of the plastics that we make is that, um, yeah, the, the uniqueness and, and the fact that each piece is, is individual. 
Mm. We'll talk about the history of the material kind of in a moment or the company. But when I first came across your iteration of Smile Plastics, you were based around the corner from where I used to live in Lower Marsh near Waterloo in London. You're currently, as you say, you're currently in the Gower in South Wales. So how did you end up in South Wales? Adam, you can respond to that one. <laughs> I don't know how far you want to go back, Grant. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I, I'm not detecting a Welsh accent. That's what, that's what I'm no, mainly thinking. I am actually well. I'm, I'm, um, oh, are you? Okay. Yeah, I was born in mid-Wales. So um, right. I have had a craving to return to Wales since leaving um, when I first left in 2000, um, around that sort of time, either for working or traveling abroad. So I definitely always wanted to come back. It felt very connected to it, but uh, you're right. I do have a, an English accent, but coming back to your question, which was about why Smile Plastics, why Wales, there is that little pet dream of mine to return. But in actual fact, through some other work that I was doing, which partly kind of funded Rosalie and I being able to, to recreate Smile Plastics, which was sort of material and mission-driven recycling work, mostly consultative, but also entrepreneurial work, which I was doing. I ended up looking for um, bracken and I was trying to make a high-value soil nourisher material and I needed right. to find a natural potassium source. And I'm not a agronomist, or, but I, I had a project and I was going to find it. So um, we ended up working with a land management company on the Gower who were harvesting the bracken off the commons lands and we then used that to compost it down and create a potassium-rich compost, which we then used as part of the ingredients in this in this other product, which I was working on, which actually links into the connection with Smile Plastics all the way through to the beginning, which I won't go into. But essentially, we ended up with a giant warehouse full of compost, as well as other things, and machines making all sorts of things, which I'd been playing with. But it was relatively low cost. And Rosalie and I, when we were looking to move and try and improve and try and really create something for smart plastics with what we had and what we could just had to use the tools that we had to hand. And we looked as much as we could, but we had very little time to find an industrial unit. And, you know, we were torn between, um, you know, it could have been anywhere, but we didn't have mm. any money. So um, that was the other, the other deciding factor. So we ended up in an underground bomb shelter which didn't really cost us anything on the Gower for a number of years, uh, where they used to disarm experimental chemical weapons. It was a, an old American military base. And we shot the for a number of years, we shared it with compost and the wild animals, <laughs> and then some machines that we'd put together to make material, essentially, and to get the business going. It was really just out of necessity, uh, although being a stone froze from the sea was an ambition that we had. So we could see that there would be a future that we kind of imagined being possible as a couple trying to create some sort of workshop manufacturing style business. Um, we weren't quite sure exactly what it would be, but we knew it could be really big. And we just, we, what we wanted to do was just give it the best opportunity, which meant being very careful with money for, you know, four or five years whilst we tried to get things going and um, almost free rent and underground damp workshop was what we had it sounds charming <laughs> but luckily we didn't invite anyone around <laughs> you definitely grant you definitely saw the front facing part yeah, of the business i think marsh. at the time yeah, yeah, yeah. in lower marsh yeah the workshop wasn't anything like i mean the showroom was three makeshift and, and the studio that we had in london which was a meanwhile space right wasn't yeah. anything like our production i mean okay 
my mum and dad were there shuffling through plastic waste, trying to clean yellow flecks out of white material because the customer had said that they had to have it pure white. And we're looking around us covered with compost everywhere, thinking, how on earth are we going to do this? <laughs> but we did it. Because I was wondering if you ended up in Wales, because Wales is arguably the greenest of the, the home nations fundamentally, isn't it? I mean, yeah. it recycles more than anywhere else in the UK and wants to be zero waste by 2050, I think. Third best in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And they've been immensely supportive of us over over the years. Um, we've had grants, secular economy grants, um, right. which we're currently delivering on for and a loan as well from the Welsh government. So, so they're, they're really on to waste and really good waste strategy as a nation. So, yeah, we're delighted to be part of it, really. That was kind of a, a, a happy... Happy coincidence. Yeah, I'd say moving from London to Wales, although we were living between the places for a number of years, and London's not the best example because every street has a different policy, but you really get a sense when you're in Wales that they're really thinking about getting people to change their habits. Mm. Domestic recycling is really clear. They only pick up certain weights every other week. So you really have to plan the way you manage your resources and the way you use products. And we mm. didn't really see that in London. It was always felt a little bit chaotic and, you know, you knew really what was going on with the material probably, which was downgrading into heat or, or something. Yeah, exported and burnt probably most of it. So you, you were in this bomb shelter and you're now in this factory in Gower, but you're going to be moving shortly. So how many people do you employ? How does it work in the factory now? We're... Um looking at Christmas and getting all of our Christmas sorted and I think we're, we're almost 50 people now as a team it's really considerable I mean just um, in 2019 just before we went through our first kind of round of, of funding because we did need to grow we were coming up to six people so we have <laughs> experienced huge growth in a very very short space of time and obviously there have been lots of challenges you know within that time with you know the pandemic and uh, and everything but um yeah we're scaling quite quickly we can't really believe how quickly and uh, the reason why we're we're moving is because we've completely run out of space and we're needing to make more products we've building another production line at the moment we haven't got anywhere to put it so yeah we're just bursting at the seams and um mm. yeah needing to move on which is it's a lovely situation to be in but um i think we're also going to miss our, our little industrial estate and being 200 meters away from the sea and the you know the wild horses and everything but it does totally make sense for us to do this presumably there are different pressures too you suddenly if you're hiring people you're managing people it is a considerable undertaking, I have to say, but, you know, equally, it's wonderful to surround yourself with great people who are really, really passionate and dedicated. And Adam and I are not having to do absolutely everything ourselves, which was for so many years the you know, the case. You know, it was the time we didn't have we didn't have a forklift and we were making these gigantic sheets, and it was just the two of us, you know, doing all of the heavy labour. And I think there's a part of us that kind of quite misses that in many ways, in a sadomasochistic way. <laughs> <laughs> But, um, you know, we've seen it all and I think it's great to be in a position where we've got a fantastic team to kind yeah, of yeah. support and go on this journey to you know, achieve the ambitions of the, of the company. Yeah, it's really nice to see the beginnings of a fantastic team coming around you. It's mm. um, That's also very rewarding, although like you said, it doesn't just come, happen overnight. It takes time to build that up. It's an ongoing journey, so, but we are really proud of of the people around us and, and what we're able to do and what we have done together. 
And so it's a 24-hour operation nowadays. Do you work shifts or how, how does this work? Yeah, actually, yeah. As of October, we're 24-7, which we can't quite believe. I <laughs> literally open the whole time. And that's brilliant, but it also means that we can't quite switch off ourselves. Adam, particularly, because he's more involved on the kind of technical manufacturing mm. side, is um, I've always kind of just checking in and making sure that everything's working fine, which actually we don't need to do anymore because we've got a fantastic team around us to enable things to work well when we're not there. It is really interesting because, as I alluded to in the intro, the material does have quite a history. As I say, I first came across it when I was working on a design magazine called FX in 1995. I think I'm getting old. And it was in a chair called the RCP2, which was created by Jane Atfield, and there was a company called Made of Waste. That piece, I think, was basically loosely based around Rip Veld's 1923 military side chair. And as I say, you can see it in the design museum if you fancy going to have a look. But actually, I hadn't realised this, that the first version of the material came from a manufacturer in Missouri called uh, Yemen Heart that Jane found while she was studying at the Royal College of Art. She started producing the material herself and joined forces with Colin Williamson when they met at an exhibition at the Crafts Council. And at that point, I think I'm right in saying he was chair of the British Plastics Federation's Recycling Council. He was the founder. He created this as, as well as the British Plastics Historical Society. So he was a real um, strong passion for um, everything plastic. Yeah, yeah. Reading the press, it seems that the power had a falling out. I'm not going to get into that here. But Adam, you met Colin when you were at university, I think I'm right in saying. Yeah, so I graduated in 2004 from Brighton. But basically my whole time at university had been a bit of an exploration into mission-driven product design. How you could change the way people do things, you know, change the world with a product because I wasn't really interested in designing cars or motorbikes or fancy chairs or sunglasses. I saw it as a catalyst. And one of the great inspirations actually that I had at that time for some of my work, which which focused on all sorts of approaches to how you could reimagine the way that the world could work with products and materials was actually the RPC chair. It was a huge inspiration for me. Well, it was a revolutionary piece of work at the time, wasn't it? It was really out there because people weren't talking about those issues and certainly in the way they do now. No, exactly. It just wasn't, I mean, even actually even in 2004, no one was really talking about it and, and it was only really recent. I mean, there's a, the odds of a little flurry of it, um, in terms of movements, whether it's cradle to cradle, little coined phrases which have helped sort of push on this kind of permaculture approach to design. So it was a great inspiration to me. And we were actually lucky enough that um, at the time that when I was at university, Colin Williamson came down from Smart Plastics to the university as part of a, a seminar series about design and gave a talk as well. I was already a fan because of the chair, so it was really exciting to to see him. And I remember going up to him, actually, as a fresh-faced student and asking him whether he'd mind if I came up to the factory. To, and had he ever tried to do this? And had, had he ever tried to do that? And um, he looked at me like I was a little bit sort of insane um, <laughs> and said, you know, definitely wouldn't be letting you anywhere near the machinery, which uh, little did he know, a little bit. Uh, perseverance and eventually the two of us began working together a little bit but um there was a project about coffee waste and bioplastics that you did together right yeah 
when I was starting, I was looking at sort of linking cultural hybrid products and material driven projects and, and this, what the aesthetic of sustainability was and how you could drive that into a product and material experience, material language and all these sort of ideas floating around in my head, but not a lot of evidence of things that have been done with it. So, but at the time in 2002, 2003, in the early 2000s, coffee was really taking off globally. Starbucks were opening 10 stores a year, 20 stores a year, 50 stores a year. Costa was on every high street. But also coming from um, rural mid Wales, where I'd only ever actually had instant coffee and probably not very good instant coffee either, seeing real coffee culture in a city was quite exciting. And even though I'd travelled quite a lot by the time I went to university, I'd never really been part of British culture or, or mainstream culture. I'd been a little fly on the wall, zooming around, seeing things and trying to experience stuff rather than sort of getting involved in in society in a kind of more conventional way. So uh, to see coffee in this wonderful artisan performance-based preparation of this ornate kind of ritualistic liquid seems totally beyond you know what was possible and the fact that it cost three pounds two pounds fifty a cup seemed totally ridiculous one pound ninety i can't remember what it was back then seemed totally insane to me and then realizing that you only extract about 10 percent to make this cup of coffee 10 15 percent and the rest is sort of thrown away was just like the epitome of waste really you're not even eating it <laughs> you know there's not that much difference from a baked bean and a coffee bean really if you think about it they are just beans kernels of life for a plant so the idea that you could take this highly cherished bean and make something recycled from it, you know, was a, a driver for, for me. And I spent a lot of time looking at that particular waste stream because I felt there was a chance. What did you end up doing together, you and Colin, with the coffee? At university, I was trying to make a replacement for the coffee cup, the paper cup. It evolved into that because I realised I didn't really want to be involved in design. So I made a replacement for a paper cup looked just like a cup. I got told off because there wasn't enough design in it. And I was like, no, (laughs) the design is the idea. I don't want it to have design. I don't want to be a design influence. I want the material to change the way people do things. I don't want to have my name attached to it or a shape attached to it. I want it to speak for itself as a material and uh, replace every paper cup in the world. But that was quite complicated. So um, after leaving well, it's not that long after leaving university, I um, got a small grant and um, used that to start doing applied research into improving the materials. And that's when I reconnected with with Colin Williamson and asked him whether um, I explained the project that I had and and discovered that he actually lived in Shrewsbury, which is on the borders of Mid Wales, which is where I grew up, and asked whether I could come and talk to him about this project and whether there was any chance that we could work together on something. Um, the idea I had was because making a coffee cup was so challenging in terms of food contact stuff and the fact that caffeine kills cells because it's that's what it's in coffee for, etc. All these types of things meant it wasn't really appropriate for a food contact application uh, without a lot of work and investment. Maybe just working with a manufacturer like Smile Plastics would enable me to produce some products which could be used to build the coffee shops and have the same impact that I had dreamt of back at university. So you went from product to architecture? Yes. <laughs> Through the medium of coffee grounds? Whilst working for a design architecture practice called Building Design Partnership. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, interesting. So Colin retired in 2010 and you both took the company on in 2014. There's this four-year hiatus, I guess. What made you decide to take it on? 
the business really sort of shut down, began shutting down as a result of the recession in 2008. And it's also still slightly before the reinvention of marketing and sales, which are now purely done through, not purely done, but massively done through social media. Mm. So it didn't really have the same sort of voice that it does, well, it has the ability to, and other businesses have the ability to have today, whether they're, whatever they're doing. So in 2010, it pretty much totally closed down and it had become part of the supply chain with my, my, my very small manufacturing business, you know, taking coffee waste. At the time I was collecting coffee from every single garden center in the country and, you know, moving it all over the place, taking it to South Wales to make compost. I was making fuel pellets in a little workshop I had in Monmouth and I was making composites with Colin to try and make coffee shops. And I had this whole idea around coffee, but then the business closed down, but I did have some projects which I wanted to maintain. I was making coffee machines for an Italian company and I didn't want to lose that work because it paid very well. But also it was very exciting, the idea that you could make a coffee machine out of recycled coffee waste. And it was the catalyst and it was a communication piece that I felt was very important for the idea of of that business. It was maybe a little bit premature in, uh, in, in that business idea. In 2014, Rosalie and I reconnected with Colin to see whether there was any way that we could try and reestablish whatever was left of Smile Plastics, if there was anything left, etc. Yeah. Back in 2010, it would have been, you know, I didn't, personally, I didn't have the ability to consider what was required to set up a manufacturing business. Um, mm. And probably still don't today, although we, we <laughs> are. <laughs> but although doing it many years on, but, um, but we needed a bit more support and help and time and, the f- four years out, really, for me as an entrepreneur, environmental entrepreneur, designer, maker, it was spent exploring how to commercialize ideas, you know, uh, that were circular in nature, etc. And so we spent a lot of time working in factories, trying to get ideas off the ground for myself or other businesses. And it was quite painful, but we realized Smile Plastics wasn't there anymore. Um and Rosalie and I were looking at, because I had lots of samples still from the factory, that it was a totally missed opportunity, that it was so before its time that it never had a chance to do what it could do. And we felt very passionate about trying to kind of recreate something in the name of. And so we contacted, actually, we spoke to both Jane and Colin to talk to them about how they thought about the idea. And um, we obviously needed Colin to help technically. Um, we spoke to Jane because we wanted to talk to her about, you know, everything and make sure that she was, she felt comfortable with what we were doing. And we made the decision that we would replace most of the work, which I had been doing with coffee waste and try and focus in on smile plastics and use some of the learning and the knowledge combined with Colin's support and knowledge and support to, to recreate the business. And we kind of went from, you know, a potting shed style business pretty quickly to a very big busy potting shed for a number of years um essentially (laughs) (laughs) i mean what was there rosalie i'm interested to know in 2014 was there any material did you have machines presumably you didn't inherit well you had a big potting shed you didn't inherit a premises in many ways we took on the name only i mean we're still rework limited trading as smile plastics it was sort of the name and the good good intentions and advice you know that on the plastic side from um from colin that's kind of what we took on but there wasn't any machinery um available the supply chains had all you know disappeared um 
so really, in many ways, we've just we've had to set up the entire thing, the entire thing from scratch. Mm. But I think we felt that it was very important to keep that name and to kind of revive um, that that name because of where it sort of sat in um, in the history in the sort of historical landscape. Yeah, so we've done absolutely everything from scratch, um, new brand, new supply chains, which mean new materials and, you know, completely new production technology as well. I mean, Adam has the method of manufacture these days is pretty different to the method of manufacture in the early days of small plastics. And it uses a lot less energy and, and heat to manufacture. Um, and, you know, Adam sort of <laughs> gets involved with all things and really innovates and has designed this new machine, which thankfully works. Um, but yeah, for several years, it was us doing, um, you know, we'd go into a factory and we would hand make the panels ourselves. We were really, really constrained with our our production capacity, which means we couldn't grow quickly enough in the really early stages. So it has been quite an adventure. It's certainly been quite challenging, you know, with all of the different variables and not being able to have a really good team around us in the early days to support. But yeah, what an immense journey and in many ways just at the start of it as well. Yeah, you know, yeah. we've got these big ideas about micro factories and how to scale the business. We're exporting a lot of what we're we're producing, which is right. fan- fantastic. But you know there is a big carbon footprint associated with shipping all over the world and you know we've got this idea that we want to keep things small and local so the idea with our factory we're creating the blueprint micro factory and you know from there we can create this distributed network of these small micro factories dotted around the world that are all taking you know local waste and transforming it into really valuable materials for local markets around the world and so yeah just at the start really of all of that am i right in saying that you've named several of your machines colin in tribute to the uh, everything is named everything (laughs) is colin Colin. it's become so confusing because we now have um, (laughs) an investor and one of our non-exec directors who's also called colin so if we have any more collins in our lives it's going to just become too confusing but yes we have named our machines (laughs) got colin one and we're just building colin number two got r2d2 they all have so much personality actually yes they do they need names they need names (laughs) when you make stuff like that you kind of need to name them because when you curse them and when you reward them it needs to be more than a lump of metal (laughs) i mean one of the stats i've seen banded about is that small plastics delivers 500 tons of co2 savings each year compared to conventional methods of making plastics how do you do that by entering in much earlier on in the manufacturing process, we can remove the homogenization of plastics into kernels, which is a kind of a phrase known today. And then that normally is then integrated, molded at a percentage into a new part, whether it's a car part or something. What we do is we take the material in its primary form, we clean and sort it, and then we use very low temperatures and pressure to sinter the material. So we're using about 40% less heat than any other plastics moulding process. Right. Because we're arranging the material as we want it, we don't need the material to flow, etc. So mm. so there's a lot of savings in, in that sense. We don't use much heat in the first instance. Uh, heat is not very good for plastics in its own right. They degrade the plastics, plastics burn. So we're trying to replace them and trying to extend the life of the material for as long as possible by not doing that. So um, the more heat you expose plastic to, the worse it gets. And it's just like, you know, anything organic, you know, you apply heat, it will burn. So we remove that out, which means the material itself has a much longer life at the end of its existence because we haven't degraded it through a high temperature process or multiple high temperature processes. 
I'm quite intrigued. Adam, we've heard a bit about your background and, and Brighton coming from Mid Wales. Rosalie, your CV is quite unconventional, I would posit. You've got an MSc in psychology and you worked in places like British Gas and Centrica. What did you do there? Well, I got a master's in occupational psychology and I decided Mm. in order to be a good occupational psychologist, you have to understand about business. So I decided that I would uh, join a general management graduate program at Centrico and Centrico owns British Gas. So I I did all sorts um, doing general management, worked in the customer service team as an agent and customer service manager, did all sorts that I because of my background, ended up kind of specialising in um, putting together apprenticeship and graduate programmes for the IT kind of department of, of British Gas. So really, really different stuff to, to what I'm doing now. But um, mm. my passion has always been in making things, always, always. I never studied it because my parents were very very well they were very strict they said do whatever you want later on but you know go off and do some academic stuff to start off with um and so that's what I you know I did and I specialized in in psychology did all sorts of just at the time that we decided to take smile plastics on together I think I was a commercial manager for a mushroom um, identification app for Roger Phillips so I've done loads of different stuff but it's um I suppose I've always wanted to work in small scale business in some way, supporting other people. I don't think I ever imagined that be running a, a big a business of the of the scale that we're at at the moment, but um, definitely wanted to be in the creative industries in some ways. You're also a jewellery designer. Yeah, so I um, when I was studying occupational psychology, I decided to also do a BTEC in jewellery, and I've been learning. I've sort of self taught designer maker really, and um, yeah, I've just done lots of part time courses, and then decided to launch my own collection in 2014. I think it was, and then the first collection was working quite closely with Adam at that stage. And um, I had this idea to kind of take, you know, what Adam was doing and kind of bring it even more to the extremes in terms of value and value perception. So working with jewellery, taking, you know, recycled coffee and Adam's amazing. I was going to say, there's a lot of coffee going on in your respective (laughs) There's a link, there's a link. Yes, recycled coffee grounds and combining them with recycled gold and and silver and diamonds and seeing what can be created, the opportunities that can Mm. be created created and the real kind of intrinsic yeah value and potential of materials obviously you know precious metals like gold and silver there's already a pretty good recycling industry there obviously less mm. so with coffee so yeah always very interested in those sorts of things always wanting to make yeah yeah how did you two meet i'm intrigued uh, we met through um one of my best best friends from school we met at her birthday party in 2008 wasn't it quite some time ago we just hit her off and I think kind of over the years supporting Adam a little bit with his various exciting <laughs> inventions and um you know it was Adam who kind of approached me he was like what about what about taking on smile plastics I was like oh okay I'll support you with that for a little bit of time while I work on my other projects and it just got bigger and bigger and bigger and I became more and more excited about so it wasn't necessarily a plan to work together it definitely was not a plan to work together we've ended up working together because I think we both feel very very passionate about similar things and um we're both very stubborn and and uh, perseverant i think um yeah <laughs> i don't actually think smart plastics could have existed unless you had the catalyst of people who would egg themselves each other along 
for so many years because we really were working all hours of the day, all hours of the week for several years. I'm not going to belittle anyone else's work, but I think it would be hard to match probably the effort that Rosalie and I have put in for the first Mm. several years. Well, I'm always interested in duos, partnerships, and what they both bring to the mix. Rosalie, I'm kind of looking at you because you've got the psychology masters. What do you both think you bring to the mix? (laughs) Well, um, Adam is definitely the inventor. I think he always wanted to be an inventor since he was a, a, a boy. So, I mean, he's technical director at Smile Plastics. He is the brains behind all of the technology and, you know, the materials, the supply chains, all of that is him. So the, the invention of the technology and the materials is definitely him. I end up doing the things that require quite a lot of organisation and, and management. And um, so I kind of manage the overall operation. You know, we both look at the strategic direction for the business and also the creative direction for the materials. And um, we like to work on new materials together. Unfortunately, we don't have the opportunity these days to work on as many new materials as we'd like to. So it's definitely something for us to work on in the future is the profile of various waste streams changes and being able to harness the potential of the kind of the the materials that are readily available um, Mm. around us so there's lots more work that we kind of want to do around that and hopefully we will be able to do that next year but um yeah I end up doing the kind of the management and organization and Adam does the fun kind of inventions what that means is getting up at three in the morning to go and check why some robot part of the machine that isn't working so Ross says it's fun but uh, it's not that much fun you know trying to work out how to rebuild something that's not working quite as you thought it might or some other emergency that happened that's normally me that's the kind of disaster risk man what I would say about Rosalie though she is going back to her jewellery she's got that attention to detail and that's where a lot of the sophistication comes in because um in the designs and the way that things come together some of the ornateness and the perfection of the materials only comes from that sort of detailed eye and um i love design and i've got a strong idea about it and I do work on a small scale as well, but Rosalie mm. can work on that really small scale. You know, she can set diamonds in stone. She can set diamonds in metal, <laughs> you know, all those types of things that require really fine precision and delicate craft and approach. And I think that's kind of it's this essence of the idea of what we feel Smile Plastics is today. It's that detail as well as the big picture. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's, you know, hopefully what is evident in in what has happened in recent years. But I think it was also there a little bit in the early days. The materials were a little bit more clumsy, but um, there was a lot of detail and thought that went into them. But I think we've really spent a lot of time trying to elevate it further. I'm going to poke around your personal life a bit more, if that's okay. How do you divide your home and work life? I'm always interested in that. My parents worked together for years and years and years. They were both GPs. And I'm always quite intrigued by how people who work together can combine the two. Honestly, I think we need to work on that more. I think (laughs) we... I think we've just been working together ridiculously hard for for such a long time. It's quite hard for us to kind of switch off. We kind of need to go off on holiday, like properly on holiday to forget about work. I think we do um, need a big holiday. Yeah, I think the passion for the business has probably been number one, I suppose, Mm. in many ways. But I think we've just made it work because we've had to make it work. Yeah, yeah. We both offer quite different things, I think, to the mix. So we're not completely on top of each other the whole time. I think we've got a shared dream and we've got our 
lovely daughter, Luna, and it's pretty wonderful to be able to work on, you know, a real passion that we both share. But I think switching off is probably one of the hardest things that that we find to do. To give you a, a you know, like a lockdown scenario, because we, we, to keep the business going, we had to work, we had to keep the business going. So, and, and actually this is, you know, one of the advantages of relocating to where we are on the way home from work, we stop off at a little cliff, climb down it to a small little beach, have a barbecue, go swimming in the sea, play with our daughter, watch the sunset, jump back up onto the car, go home and fall asleep and go back to work the next day. But it doesn't sound that bad, does it? No, it sounds, sounds all right. <laughs> <laughs> <Lovely>. with you. <laughs> I'm heading to the hour now. No, we <laughs> happily host you. We're always looking to convert people to come down. So, yeah. so tell me, I mean, I, I've tried to, actually, I haven't really asked anybody about lockdown recently because I, I wondered whether listeners might get a bit bored of it, but I am quite intrigued in your instance. How did the company cope with those two years? I mean, we're still in it in many parts of the world are still in it, obviously one should say, but it was particularly hard in this country for a couple of years. How did you deal with it? Trading wise, we were definitely affected by it, but we'd just gone through a round of funding and there was a lot that we needed to do in kind of professionalising our systems and building this new bit of machinery. And I think we just got our heads down and got stuck in and tried to make it all work. I mean, we were really fortunate that we were able to, the business was able to stay open and kept on manufacturing throughout that time. And luckily we live in really, really beautiful place, you know, just by the sea. And so we weren't, you know, we'd moved out of London. We weren't kind of, you know, <laughs> in a really, really tight, tight city. So we were really lucky in so so many ways. And Adam, I still haven't got COVID. I don't know how I've managed to avoid it. Adam did have it more more recently. But um, yeah, I think we're just enormously fortunate throughout that time that we could keep on going. And Yeah. So the factory stayed open, in other words. Factory stayed, stayed open, open, stayed trading. A few people were furloughed. Um, we did like, we basically, we disappointed our investors a little bit. It was a great excuse, but it meant that we mm. could work on other things and grow a little bit slower. So it's essentially delayed everything by a number of years. So we're, we're a few years behind our business plan. Right. But I don't think that's dissimilar from other businesses globally. You know, we're all, everyone's got thrown back a couple of years. It has yeah, been yeah, a couple yeah. of years right. of pause. We're in a really strong position now, you know, in terms of we put in so much work over the last two years to getting things working better and more effective that we think that the business is probably as strong as it has ever been and should, should be able to withstand another recession or, or pandemic, etc. Well, that's just as well. Yeah. <laughs> Let's face it. I mean, what about the market for recycled plastic at the moment? It seems to me you don't have it all to yourself anymore. Is it getting increasingly competitive out there? Yeah, certainly we've really feel, I mean, it's partly due to our success and social media and organisations like the social media group, Precious Plastic, you know, a lot of communication and also a lot of demonization about plastics in the environment as well. So people are really looking for ways to, to use it. It's meant that possibly more business savvy people, because Rosalie and I certainly weren't coming at it to make money. And we're still not looking at it in that. We're mission driven. There is an important aspect. We do have to make money. We want to pay people. We want to we want to prove that it can succeed as an idea. But yes, you know, with success, other things follow. And you always see that. So is that a bad thing for you or is that a good thing? It's not a bad thing at all. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing 
position to be in really there's a huge market for decorative surfaces out there and there's a hell of a lot of plastic as well and I guess the more businesses out there that are finding good solutions for plastics waste the better really you know it might well make it harder for us as a business to find the sort of raw materials that we want to as we scale but you know it's fantastic that there are businesses out there that are finding these amazing solutions for plastics waste and far better than that than it ends up in landfill or being incinerated. Mm. One thing we haven't talked about actually is where you find your waste and how you set up those systems. That's like a ever-evolving, very exciting part of the business. And when I say exciting, you could say nail-biting sometimes. <laughs> you know, we've had companies that we've developed. So essentially what happens, I've spent many years rummaging around factories, working in recycling as a creative designer maker trying to look at ways that things could change and looking at manufacturing as the place that I feel that there's an opportunity. So I have learned an awful lot. And we, we got a lot of help from Colin introducing us to a few companies, but essentially it normally starts by just going through a kind of a quality validation process where we'll work with a waste recycling company and we'll look at what they've got and we'll say the things that we think are possible. And then we'll work with them to try and improve and get the quality out so that we can manufacture a product with. So even, you know, we're working with other companies to try and improve what they do to be able to supply us with materials. We do take material ourselves. We have relevant licenses, et cetera, to do that sort of thing. But essentially our focus really isn't in collecting and sorting plastic waste. Our mission is is to use and to be a facilitator of that material coming out of recycling businesses, adding value to it, creating more jobs, being part of an ecosystem, and then converting it into something that's not being made and a new product that isn't impacting other people so much um, in terms of losing people losing their jobs. I mean, really creating opportunities, we hope, for people. So essentially, we step in as a facilitator early on, we'll network and we'll link people together to get materials ready and prepared for us. And once we've got that, hopefully, hopefully it will stay for a long time. If not, we have to find another route. So we're always working on the supply chain. We're working with companies. Yeah, yeah. And you have a buyback scheme now. I we have a buyback scheme. You know, we How want does that, that material. We spend a lot of time, long, long, long time getting it ready. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I'll pay you for it. Please bring it back. As Rosalie mentioned earlier, a lot of our customers are commercial and a lot of it's come into shop fit out displays and sort of temporary installations where they were using anything, MDF, stone, other plastics, etc. So it makes total sense for them to use something like our material. And especially if we can work with them to take it back at the end of its life, it's like a, a really amazing story for them. And also for us and for people who we can't change the way we can't change everything. We can just be part of a positive impact as you know, with what we do. So the buyback scheme is something that we offer businesses and it's a way to incentivize them to see the value with some of our repeat customers, because we have a cutting service, we have CNC machines and we cut shapes out for people. It doesn't really work on a, like a one-off project, but when we have repeat customers, we actually pay for the waste before it leaves the factory. Oh, right. Interesting. So we give people money, but we give them a rebate or a discount on yeah, the yeah. product. If you go to a normal wood workshop, there's all these offcuts everywhere. It actually costs them mm. money to dispose of that. And that's a cost which goes to the customer. But really, it's not fair. We can recycle that. We do that. 
it doesn't work forever for everyone. We have to have a, like a long-term project, but we're probably going to work on that more and more and more because we want people to really realise the opportunity and to realise the benefits of working with materials that have an, the potential to be recycled many times. And the beauty of our business model is that we can do that. And the materials you know, can be integrated back into the, a similar product or a new custom material for, for one of our customers. Our materials are 100% recyclable. They're pure plastic types, which means that our, our customers can put them in conventional plastics re- recycling. So, um, but, you know, even even better is that they can return it to us and we can sort it and we can recreate it into to something new um, for them and then fully close the loop on that kind of waste material. There are lots of options there. And sometimes we're, you know, advising clients on how to work with our materials so that they can be easily deconstructed um, at the end of their useful life, you know, limiting the amount of glues and different materials to ease the recycling process, really. Mm. Mm. I mean, you'll be glad to hear we're coming to the end of our time because <laughs> I know you have children or a, a Luna to, to pick up. But just final question, looking at your press cuttings, you've had some reasonably hefty investment this year. I think you just received just under a million pounds from the Green Angels Syndicate. So I'm guessing you have some significant future plans. I mean, Rosalie, you've kind of been alluding to what your future plans might be. But now is the moment to encapsulate it all for the listeners. What can we expect from Smile Plastics in the near future? Well, moving down the road into a much bigger site, we're building another production line as well, which means we can double our production capacity and reduce our lead times because our customers have been very patient with us for many years, but they have had to wait quite a long time for their materials. Mm. So, um, yeah, we're being able to reduce our lead times um, and we've got big plans. We want to innovate and make new materials next year and then we want to grow further. We've got our network of micro factories on our agenda. Where would you ideally locate your first micro factory anywhere in the world? Well, we're having a few discussions at the moment and um I mean, we've been talking about maybe having a location that's fairly close to home so that we can be, you know, quite, quite close and, and, and make sure that, you know, it gets replicated the first time well. But yeah, we'll have to w- watch this space and see where we get to with that. But yeah, if anyone's kind of interested in speaking to, to us about how to kind of partner and, and grow, we'd be interested into that. But Grant, answering the question, the dream, if we had the choice. Yeah. One of the reasons we really loved the idea of Smile Plastics being on the Gower, which is the first UK area of outstanding natural beauty, is that we're part of the Make It Better movement, essentially. We're, we're trying to improve the way things work and we're part of a recovery program as well. We're trying to stop waste entering the environment and protect places of outstanding natural beauty where people visit and want to cherish these places for a long time so because we've been talking about this idea since day one in in fairness although we we always thought that we would prefer just to be the two of us or maybe three or four people making beautiful things for not you know not too many people as a preference for you know our live work situation uh, the dream was to see the full potential of what smile plastics was and what we would like if we had chance is to put micro factories in areas of nearby, not in, nearby areas of outstanding natural beauty globally, where you have an international community of people visiting either for tourism or for other reasons. And 
to be part of the kind of the building of the built environment in those areas to try and communicate messages to those people using it as a kind of a global platform, essentially. But also with human population growth, the growth of urban hubs, there's, there is more waste floating around in these places. And so, you know, working with local hospitality and retail, et cetera, in those areas to um, make beautiful materials that can be integrated back into that that sort of growing community space, wherever it might be. Some beautiful place in America or, you know, ideally near the sea, because Rosalie and I have a dream that we can be near the sea when we're visiting. But um, but those are dreams, right? <laughs> Whether or not we end up there. We do have very um, some very strong projects in the continent that we're working on. Right. Continental Europe, okay. very important. And there are conversations going further afield. And there's been conversations going further afield for a long time. So it's partly due to us just getting our head around building big machines, moving giant production factories around and rebuilding machines and just understand what that really means because it's, it's a big undertaking. We're doing it at the moment. You know, we're building a new production line. We're relocating. We're setting up a new factory. So we're actually doing that today, tomorrow, next week, in the next few months. So, um, and we've been doing it for the last few months as well. So we are, we are on that learning journey really, but it all comes back down to, you know, us trying, you know, small little details, essentially, trying to focus on those. Okay, so first up, factory in Swansea, and then factories on the West Coast of America. West Coast, maybe Southeast Asia. Look out for it in the future. Yeah, yeah. Cancun, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> Rio de Janeiro. Nice. Yeah. Nice, nice. Yeah. If you need help with anything, I'm I'm there for you. Yes, fantastic. Um, Adam, Rosalie, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciated that. That was fun. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. much. And to discover more about Smile Plastics, go to smile-plastics.com. As ever, there are images from the interviews on our Instagram page, materialmatters.design. And you can find all the podcasts I've done, sign up to our newsletter and lots of other stuff on our website, which is also materialmatters.design. Finally, and this is really important too, If you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us from. And it would make me incredibly happy if you went to my Patreon page and made a pledge at patreon.com forward slash material matters. For as little as £2.50 a month, you can receive exclusive posts, blogs and thoughts from yours truly, as well as getting access to each episode before it's published to the wider world. Material Matters is a completely independent concern and any help you can offer would be hugely appreciated. Ultimately, you'll be helping to take the message of the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. Thanks very much for listening.